Hi, I'm Tammy Rodman. I'm Reynolds Chapman. And I'm Keith Daniel. Welcome to Who Is My Neighbor, a podcast about what it looks like to love your neighbor. Every city has a story, and our wonderful city of Durham, North Carolina has woven our stories together. This podcast is an invitation to join us as we journey through Durham's history of pain and hope and discover what God is speaking to us in this moment. Come with us as we listen to the voices of the Samaritans. In this first season, we are asking a question to respond to our present moment. Who is my neighbor amid a pandemic and a history of racial injustice? I'm going to start off today's episode by reading this WRAL headline. It reads, more than 75% of Durham's COVID-19 cases are in the Latinx community. And the article starts by saying this, the number of people infected with the coronavirus in the Hispanic community continues to rise in Durham. A total of 77% of Durham County's coronavirus cases reported in June are within the Latinx community, said the Department Public Health Director Rodney Jenkins in a coronavirus task force meeting Friday morning. Last month, that number was 67%. Hispanics only make up around 13% of the population, which means they are disproportionately affected by the virus. These kind of statistics are startling to a lot of people in our community. Um, but today we're not going to be focusing on statistics. Today we're going to be hearing from two people who have devoted their lives to caring for their community. We're going to be talking with Ivan Almonte and Miriam Valle. Ivan provides rapid response to the Hispanic Latino community, to people who need it the most. He provides education to the community. Uh, through a lot of different avenues, and he's been devoting his life to this to the, for the past couple of decades. Miriam Valle is a part of Durham Cares. She is our program and operation coordinator, and she also works with multiple other nonprofits. And in her life outside of her uh, her work, she works with the Latino Hispanic community, uh, caring for people in many different ways. So, Yvonne and Miriam, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having us. Well. One of the things that is really important to us on this show is stories. And in the first episode, Keith and Tammy and I shared our story. And uh, in the last episode, we got to hear the story of Virginia Williams. And we want to start off today by hearing your stories. So I'll start with you, Yvonne. Uh, what led you to this work? Share with us about how uh, you've been caring for your community over the past couple of decades and what led you to it. Um, well, the first, I will start with this. Um, we are essential, but we're invisible to the system. Um, I started like a long time ago, back in 1999, when I, uh, when I arrived uh, to Durham from California. And uh, being a bilingual person, I just found out that my community was not well served. I had to start volunteering at uh, Riverside High School back in 2004 because Latino parents, they didn't have any support. Kids were running away from school, from home, joining game and games, and also younger kids um, just dating older boys. And for me, that was a frustration because I was like, how you are part of this community, but you are invisible. You don't have the support that other communities have, or maybe because you don't have a status, that means you cannot have those uh, same resources. So it was for me kind of impossible just to go uh, to every single school to 
listen to any to every single parent that they because you know the language barrier so it was kind of it was kind of tough and then i i joined the immaculate immaculata the catholic church used to volunteer because the need was to create a youth group back then to in order like to prevent all these issues uh, and then later on i had the opportunity to join el centro hispano as a the uh, as a youth organizer where I was able to provide space to bring families to the cent to El Centro, used to have uh, weekly workshops for uh, youth and parents about how to prevent, you know, uh, drugs, alcohol, all these uh, issues that were, you know, like uh, kids didn't want to go to school, didn't want to stay in the school. So at the same time, I was advocating because a lot of kids who were brought here, like uh, at a younger age. They didn't have access to higher education. So kids just wanted to work, but we know they are smart. And then, um, you know, ice rates, there's another big issue, family separation. And also I'm undocumented. I don't have a status. That's why I keep fighting since 1999 because all these issues affect me and affect my family. By not having a social security number, by not having a work permit, by not having, by having also some leaders speaking on my behalf with a lot of privilege, that's not okay. So we're tired of that. We're tired of that. So that's what I, I keep fighting. And now with the pandemic, it's just like, it's so sad. What I keep hearing from my community is like, we're dying. Why us? It's just like ice rates. It's between ice rates and, and the pandemic. It's just like, Enough is enough. In um, two days ago, I just got a phone call from another family from El Salvador who had been residents here in Durham for 20 years, and he's 18 years old. He was on his way to um, to drop off an a job application in Raleigh with his father, and he just got into a crash and, and a car accident. Now he's at the hospital, and while he was recovering, he got the virus. So now he is, um, he a positive. And the sad story is like his uncle and his grandfather a few weeks ago, both passed away of COVID-19. So his mom is devastated. So what to do? I don't know. Without resources, but we're essential. That's, that's my story. <laughs> Thank you, uh, Yvonne. Miriam, share with us about uh, your journey to this work and what's going on with, with you right now. Yes, of course. Um, so I have started working in a nonprofit um, sector maybe about um, 12, 13 years ago. I started as an intern doing um, financials, but then in my internship, I started working with Hispanic Latino communities uh, by doing some translating and interpreting. Um, I myself am an immigrant, was born in Mexico, brought to the United States when I was four years old. Um, and I didn't realize how important it was to have a document that solidified your status here in the United States until I was older and I started to have to have a driver's license or um, or a job or even um, just the very essential things that a 
human being needs to here in the United States. So um, as I was doing my job in this internship, I realized that I could be on the other side of um, on the other side with the families because I had the same needs, I had the same struggles, I had the same um, worries. And though I spoke the language and though I was able to be in a professional setting, um, I knew that the need was huge. And not only because I could see it in, in my community, not only because um, I was going through it, but also because my family, my uh, my parents were also and um, came to this country with a dream of um, the American dream of um, making it and providing for us, for us to go to school and go to college. Um, unfortunately, it didn't happen the way that the way that they wanted. So um, all of those things kept accumulating within me and just made me realize that I was really, there was really a struggle and there was really a gap within the community. And I could not do a lot because I felt so tiny and it was a lot of work to get done. But I think it, I didn't start get, getting passionate about this work um, until like later on in the years when I was really deep within the nonprofit sector where I started engaging with the families that I work with, with one of the organizations I work for, and just having those relationships and reminding myself of where I came from, where I belong, because I struggled a lot too. Um, and I've heard Yvonne in his previous lives and just um, within our community how the people's kids that come to the United States when they're younger, they uh, either become legal later in the years, have a residency, citizenship, or DACA. Um, they forget about their community. They forget where they come from. And that was something very persistent within my heart that I prayed to God that he would never allow me to forget where I came from. Um, but I did struggle a lot uh, being torn between two places being Americanized and being Mexican. Um, I think it didn't really hit me until I was a little bit older when I realized that I was Mexican and I didn't need to be American to be accepted here in the United States or where I worked. I felt that it was a struggle trying to fit in within the system of um, America. Uh, and then I realized it doesn't matter what I do. If I try to be an American or if I try to act like an American, nothing will work for me because I didn't have documentation um, to, to, to even get the essential things like a driver's license or like even a social security number. Um, so it didn't matter how much I did. It didn't matter if I paid my taxes. It didn't matter if I, um, if I tried to be a good citizen in America, because if I got pulled over or if I got detained by ICE, it it wouldn't have mattered because I would have have still gotten deported. Or um, I think about my family, my mom, the same thing, my uncles, my aunts, my cousins. But also, like thinking about the the people here in my community, the same struggle. So um, as I continue to do the work, I realize that there's. We have so many resources that um, that are available supposedly for the Hispanic Latino community, and 
And then I thought about it. I'm like, yeah, that's great. But how are you getting the message across to these communities? So you have the 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 ones who are in poverty and poor. Then you have the middle class, and and then you have the upper class. And I'm talking within the Hispanic Latino community. And I I realized that those who were in the upper class had so many, um, it, it was like a bank of resources that they had to share. But there was a gap. There's like this big gap. They're sharing the information and resources with organizations and communities that have access to them quickly because they they either know how to use a computer, they speak English, they have connections. They can get to these resources as quickly as possible. But in reality, um, they're not really getting into the to the deep, like you know, like when you submerge yourself in a place where, you know, the only way you're gonna know and find out what something means is if you if you go deep. And I don't think those in the higher ranks want to be dealing with people in the lower ranks. So um, when I see Ivan, and I bring up Ivan because I've seen his work, and um, and it's like. You get to know somebody through the work that they do, and probably you don't know them personally. But I've seen Yvonne's work, um, and he does so many things that I know that I don't have the capacity to do. But the passion that he brings, the commitment that he has with this this community, our community, uh, and, and the, the reaction that he gets from them, it's so amazing how people react and how people start listening. Because he's listening to, to the community. He's hearing them out. Which, when I think about those in leadership in upper classes, like, what are they actually doing to get to these people? Because it's hard. I mean, I'm not going to make it seem like it's easy because it's not. Because first you have to gain their trust. Then you have to start um, creating relationships. And once you create a relationship with trust, it's easier for the community to to accept it, it's easy for the it's easier for the community to start evolving and like making changes happen. But when there's no trust in the community, when there's no trust, and you feel like you have been ostracized or you have been put on the side, it's so hard to start seeing change. And I've seen that throughout the years of in this work. Um, I know that I, for myself, I, I truly believe that relationships and trust are the main the the main foundation of making change happen specifically for communities that are being oppressed specifically for communities that don't have the resources that they need even though like I said previously there there is a bank of resources for the Hispanic Latino community but they're not we're not getting it across because there's this gap you know like there's this gap where in order for us to get it to to the lower class, we have to go through the middle class. But sometimes even the middle class, which will probably would be people like me who are in professional settings, know the language, sometimes we kind of forget. We kind of forget about our people. We kind of forget where we come from. And I'm not saying everybody, but I'm saying like that happens. Like, like I said before, I struggled many years um, figuring out who I was. And and that was because I I felt like I was becoming Americanized, um, in another way colonized, and starting to forget my roots. But then I had an awakening moment, and I was like, no, I am actually Mexican. This is where I came from. Um, I'm proud to say that I am a DACA recipient. I'm proud to say that um, 
that even though I have DACA, to me, that's that honestly, that doesn't define who I am as a person, as a human being. Um, and also, I, I don't think DACA is the answer to the real issue here in America. But you know what? I'm just going to go with it. Um, but I still believe that our people who are in this professional settings that are Hispanic or Latino are doing the, the best that they can. But we also have people that are actually doing the work in the community, like the dirty work, as we would call it. And they need help. They need help from us so that we can get the attention of those leaders who are in the upper upper level, I would say, to actually start listening to what the community needs, to actually to start listening what we need. I think, like Yvonne said earlier, we're really tired of hearing people tell us what we need and try to fix us because we're not something to fix. No, the system needs to get fixed. Equality that supposedly exists really doesn't exist for us. Um, uh, and there's so many things that I know that not only my community has to go through, also the black community goes through, and there's so many similarities. And I think um, for for us to start seeing changes, we need to start coming together and stop being divided. And just those who are in power, they need to start really letting people like us start taking the lead and start having the, letting us have these conversations and stop pushing us back. Because when I think about it, like people complain about this oppressed community. They're not getting out of poverty. We're just enabling them. We're just doing this. We're not really helping them. Yes, we're not being helped. And yes, it feels like we're being enabled because they keep telling us what we need. They're not hearing us. We need to be heard. We need to be listened to so that you can start seeing what the real problem is. My hopes and desires is that within the work that I do here in the nonprofit world is that I'm able to open up some eyes, educate some people through what the um, what things that um, I've experienced, but also like, of course, data statistics are important, but you can't put a number on a person's life and you cannot put data on real life things. Um, and my hope and desire is that we start creating those changes and we start seeing action in our communities, specifically in Durham, because I mean, I wish I could do it all over the world, but I mean, just a little bit at a time, specifically in our community, we could start seeing those changes and we could start have, allowing people that are in the communities like us to start taking the lead, to start having these conversations and being heard. Um, I know Yvonne does an amazing job and so much work within our community that I know that it, it it's probably very, um, it could get very overwhelming, but I can totally see our community, how they respond back. And I think that's what we need to start seeing. And this needs to get to the upper level so that we can start seeing changes. Thank you. Thank you. Um, I want to ask now, and Yvonne, you had begun sharing a bit already. Um, as Reynolds said at the beginning, stories are important. Um, and share with us, this is the opportunity to share with us what you're seeing, what's going on. Um, those those uh, stories of people losing grandfather, uncle, 
Um, we need to hear that. And I think the people, our audience needs to hear that because when you hear the story, you can get off of the stats, as Miriam said, and stop looking at the numbers so much, but really realize that there's a person behind that number. Um, so if you don't mind, you and Miriam, just share some of the stories and encounters that you're having and what you're witnessing, what you're seeing as far as the impact of COVID-19. Well, first, it's so painful seeing uh, children just crying, uh, devastated, devastated because what they say is like, oh, he's gone. He's just gone. We, we didn't even have the time or the opportunity to say goodbye. You know, like uh, they used, they were taken to the emergency room and uh, they're not allowing family members to be at the hospital with them. So uh, when I received the uh, a screenshot of the doctors trying to put it in the face of the person who's at the, uh, you know, in the hospital and the family on the other side, that is so painful because families are like, well, what am I supposed to do now? I need to be there with him. I need to, I need to, you know, like there's too much to say now. What if I not, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be able to, to say goodbye, to say the things that I wanted to say. Basically, the people are doing it before even die. They die because they know what is coming, you know. Um, and also, like um, there have been some family issues between the family members who are here and who are in Latin America because, you know. Our culture is like, we, we we need to bring the body, they say. We need to bring the body over because we want to see him, see her for the last time. And it's so painful that if we don't have that opportunity, we're not going to heal. So, you know, those conversations that people will not make public, they're so painful. Seeing the community organizing themselves in order for them to have, a, um, you know, like uh, an a funeral that the person deserves as any other resident in Durham, it's just so painful. Uh, you will see family cooking for the whole family, uh, other like members of the community trying to raise money in a different ways because we had to raise almost $10,000 for the funeral expenses, money that the family didn't have because they had been out of work for three months. People are being working like two hours, five hours and um, business uh, owners trying to, you know, keep their employees, but they're not making it. They're not making it. Now evictions, like it's just so much going on. Like every end of the month or the, the first uh, day of the month, they had to worry about how we're going to pay rent. How I keep, I'm not going to be able to keep paying my phone. And that's at least what I need to be able to communicate with doctors, to be able to communicate with the schools, because otherwise I don't have money to pay for the cable. I don't have money to, you know, it, it's just too much. I mean, there is a list of things that if this thing will be public, like people will be like, wow, I'm a privileged person, you know? And when you see these people in the streets, if you go to other, the like, you know, um, grocery stores now wearing a mask, it's just because they don't care. They don't care about others because they have the privilege to have everything. So people are frustrated about it. You know, I constantly keep telling my community, please wear a mask. 
stay home. And if you give, uh, if you got positive, let people know that you are, you have the, the COVID-19 just to make sure they are okay. Just because, you know, blah, blah, blah. But when they ask me, Ivan, but what, is, what are the consequences for those people who are not wearing a mask? I'm like, okay, just email the, the city, uh, you know, email uh, electoral officials. Email, uh, if you feel like you are not safe or so, or your neighbor across the street is making like a 50, you know, a, a family with 50 people at the same time, so they're not, you know, they're not respecting this. I mean, if you feel like, call the police if you want. I don't know, because I keep receiving uh, videos of people having fun and more than 50 people. I keep receiving all these, you know, and what should I say? It's just like, I don't know. I feel like our communities, especially communities of color, have been disproportionately not been served because it's just too much. It's just too much and, and it's just getting out of control. Having maybe like one Latino person dead every two weeks or something like that, it's not okay. Something is going on and nobody's talking about it. I don't see the, the elected officials talking about this. In Durham, I don't see the media talking about this because they know it's not okay to talk about your the people you have elected. And we're progressive. Are we progressive enough in Durham? I don't think so. Miriam, thank you. Thank you, Yvonne. Things that I've seen within the last couple of months just uh, working with the families that I work with um, and also like family members, um, it's it's been really complicated. Um, I think there, there there's a task force going on now in Durham that they're trying to figure out, okay, what's going on in the community? Why are Hispanic Latinos are being impacted more in Durham, which is almost four months later, where this should have gotten done in the beginning. One, because we already know from statistics and data that the Hispanic and Latino community have always been um, marginalized, one. We already know that there's a language barrier. We already know that there's a cultural, um, there's 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 cultural, um, and I'm not sure what the right word is, but th we have a culture that cannot be taken away or ripped out of this community just because, or like from the day, from one day to another. So that's a, another issue. Uh, we already know that. Um, a lot of the immigrant community has to work low-paying jobs, restaurants, hotels, construction, um, you, you name it. So if we had already known about this, the action should have happened in the beginning when the pandemic, the, the pandemic started. But like I said before, I think there is that gap where the leaders who are on top are not receiving it because they're not hearing us. They're not seeing, they're not hearing it. It's people like Yvonne who are within the community actually doing the dirty work that are getting all of this. But how is even Yvonne also being hurt? How am I being hurt? Um, if I'm just a Miriam, <laughs> it's just Yvonne. It's sometimes it feels like you have to be in a place of power, in a place of, of uh, power to be heard. So, um, what I have to say is that 
uh, we're extremely late. Now everybody seems that they want to start having these conversations around coronavirus within the Hispanic Latino community where it has already spread as like Reynolds read earlier, it's 73% of the cases are Hispanic Latino community. Um, personally, I had COVID, my family had COVID, my daughter's dad side of the family had COVID, um, friends that I know had COVID. Um, some of them were bad. Some of them were very mild. Um, and and the, the sad thing about this is when people get COVID, and I know Yvonne mentioned this, what did they do? Like you get tested, where do you go? What doctor do you go to? Because if you're undocumented, you don't have health insurance. You don't have a health care provider. The first thing they'll tell you, oh, yeah, let's just send you to Lincoln. Let's just send you to the health department. They'll they'll help you. They'll let you I need, I actually need help. I actually need someone to help me that cares enough that will explain it to me because there's a barrier. There's that language. First of all, there's that language barrier. Then there's the cultural barrier. And, and it seems like people keep getting sent to these places where they already, like in their community, you you do send people to Lincoln, you do send people to Lion Park, Holton Center, um, so many places where um, it's public health, and I'm not saying they need private health, but the problem is because so many get pe- so many people get sent there. Um, those who work within our Hispanic Latino community sometimes start stereotyping, start, sometimes start, you know, start, you know, assuming things that are not true. Um, people don't want to go because they don't trust. Like, why am I going to go there? Um, cases that I saw is, uh, for example, uh, one of my family members, they tested positive for COVID. Um, I told them, hey, let me help you uh, by helping you with the tele- telehealth uh, video, get you to a doctor to talk to a doctor who speaks Spanish, which is $20. So you have to download the app. You have to make the appointment. You have to put in what your symptoms are. So it's a, it's a process that you have to go with through with the person and sit with the person and help them figure that out. If you're not doing that with them, they're not going to do it because one, language barrier, two, trust issues. If I'm learning a language and I have to speak with somebody, it's embarrassing. It can be very intimidating to talk to somebody that um, I don't know and um, I have to figure this out on my own. And you would say, well, they've been here for so many years. Why are they scared? It, it doesn't matter if a person has been here in the United States for so many years. I think the fact that they had already been ostracized within the country has made it very clear that they're not welcome, has made it very clear that no matter what they do, they're not going to get the attention that they need. So um, when I was going through the processes with people that needed help getting aftercare after they found out that they had COVID, it was really hard. People didn't want to do it because they were like, why would I do that? Why am I going to pay all that money for someone to just tell me to stay at home, which they already knew, but what's going to happen next? Like, what are the medications? What am I going to take? Uh, What about work, right? You think about those things. How are they going to pay their bills? How are they going to pay the rent? Um, if it's a single mom, how are they going to do it? They they can't qualify for uh, financial assistance because of their status. Um, they don't have access to any uh, the, of the benefits. Maybe they might if they have a citizen child who they can apply 
for food stamps or whatever, but that's not enough. I think, um, like Ivan was saying, the essential workers who are the people who work in construction, restaurants, hotels, janitors, um, all of those people had to continue to work through the pandemic. It's like the system has made them believe that COVID was not real. It was just like a little virus, like a flu, like in a virus that I can't stop working. Who's going to pay my bills and my rent? Like I have to continue to work. This is, this is not real. We've been through a lot already. We've been through a lot in our countries. I mean, this is the things I would hear from some of the, the, the people in my community. Like, this is not real. I think it's just the, the, the government trying to scare us. This is the government who's trying to tell us that, you know, we have to stay home. Like, why am I going to stay home? So it's, it's things that have already been infiltrated in people's minds that don't allow them to trust. The government to, that doesn't allow them to trust even the city officials or people in leadership because they have already been ostracized. And if you think about it, if you have been um, racially traumatized throughout your years of living here in America, then are you really going to listen when people say, oh, there's a pandemic going on and you need to stay home and you can't go out, you can't work and we're going to help you, we're going to try to figure it out? No, people are not going to believe that because it's it's like when DACA came out, and I'm going back to that example. Like when DACA came out, I did not apply right away because I did not believe in it. Like, how is that really going to help me? I feel like there was going to be a, um, like there was something. Like I gave in my information, something else was going to happen. And when I was working with some of the families, when we were there was um, some families that got financial assistance, not through, not uh, government assistance, but. Um, some families were concerned. They were like, do I have to pay this money back? Um, the apartment lease is not under my name. The house mortgage is not under my name. Are they still going to be able to help me? Do I have to pay this money back to the government? So it's already in people's brains that you can't even access the help because you, your fear that by getting help, it's going to actually damage you or affect you. So Hearing these stories from families and um, seeing why people don't wear masks or seeing why people are not trusting, it makes sense to me now. Like, how can you trust a system that continues to disappoint you, that continues to oppress you, that continues to make you feel like you're worthless because your life is worthless because it, it doesn't matter that people are dying in your community. You still need to come to work and and we actually can't help you by giving you benefits or paying you your days off. Um, how can people trust that? Like, it's, it's like a survival mode. You have to survive. I don't blame people for not trusting, but I also continue to encourage my people, please wear a mask. Please be aware of those who are have um, other, other, other underlying health issues. And it's, it's a really hard conversation, hard times. Uh, people have a lot of assumptions around my community, stereotypes. The leaders in our communities start listening and hearing for real, for real, then maybe we'll start getting some trust and maybe we'll start seeing some change. But as of now, I don't think those who are being oppressed or ostracized are really going to be listening to the leaders if the leaders are not giving the example either. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, 
I have a I have a habit that probably is not so good on a on a podcast, and that's the need to just sit in silence when I hear um, voices and expressions like yours, um, like what you just shared, uh, Miriam. I must admit that it is, um, you know. There's a book written by a Duke Divinity professor who I admire named Richard Lisher. He did some work on Dr. King. He wrote a book on King's life and he wrote a book called End of Words. And uh, it talks about the agony of someone who is in the preaching profession and having to get up to offer a word or some type of encouragement in the midst of of tragedy and struggle and uh, the condition of human. It, 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 it truly uh, defies um, us to be able to offer uh, words in, in response or, or capture the depth of, uh, you know, human pain and struggle um, as we see it, you know, across the globe. Um, and, you know, since you brought it up in your expression, I don't think it's been mentioned to this point, but when you, you said, you know, God, uh, made made a made a reference to God. I um, again reminded that the spirit of this of this podcast is the question: Who is my neighbor? And you know, seeking to to lean into that question as it as it pertains to the to the gospel narrative when Jesus puts that question to a um, uh, a person who is in in some ways trying to alleviate their own. Um, need to know that uh, what they did qualified them for um, a righteous path uh, towards towards heaven. And it is it is tough to ask questions like this when we, you know, the answers seem to be so clear in terms of system systemic, uh, you know, policy and economic disenfranchisement and othering of, of people because of, you know, cultural difference, as you said, or, or other barriers, um, language and such. Uh, and so, I mean, I guess the question still challenges us. And the one that I, I wrestle with imposing, and I've actually posed this with a few of my friends as an African-American man who's been sitting with lots of friends from across the color line, I would, I would say, who have asked, you know, we, we're sorry, or we don't know what to do, or, you know, how can we make amends? How can we repair? How can we reconcile? And, you know, this ongoing sort of sense of futility, because, you know, when you have centuries and, and years of tremendous, um, disruption uh and and dislocation of human bodies um it does seem it does seem you know deeply disillusioning like you said but i i still you know i asked you yvonne to to say maybe more that you feel would be insightful for our hearers as it relates to these why reasons right i mean right now i'm honestly saying why god you know not why why government <laughs> i mean because i'm you know that's the cry again of, of christ and even even you know, the, the lamenting story is, you know, God, you know, we need, we need divine intervention really because the human condition seems to be so fixated on its own self-interest. 
But maybe I guess uh, as you continue to probe the why and help our listeners, you know, maybe draw more proximate to your to the pain or to the promises like that you see happening out there. I guess I I'm teetering on that space of asking you even to point us to um, further investigation of the why. And then also, you know, maybe where you see promise and hope. Yeah, thank you. Um, I will follow what the medium mentioned that a few weeks ago when the, um, Governor Roy Cooper and Dr. Mandy Cohen, uh, they invited some Latino leaders to their side to speak up on what was the new proposal for uh, for Latinos in the state. And the, I mean, the good news, I guess, it was that one of these organizations, what all of the organizations they mentioned, they were receiving uh, 100K dollars for, for our community. So, I mean, at some point I got excited, but on the other end is like, why these organizations are giving the money when they just woke up and start like creating awareness in the community. We have a Central Hispano who is in, who is in Durham for more than 20 years. And I remember back in the first week of March of this year, I was started receiving phone calls through Facebook and saying, you know, I think I have some symptoms and I think we're getting the COVID. And it was just like, I was started feeling the the chaos. Um, so families couldn't leave home because they had to stay at home to be safe and uh, uh, infect other people. So, but they needed food. So I remember organizations and public schools, they still, I think they were like, just getting the sense of oh, something is coming, but we're not ready. We're not doing anything yet. But I was like, who's going to feed these families? I mean, they had kids, people need to work and, you know, and I started reaching out to Latino businesses. I went to Garden of Carolina. Uh, near the farmer's market, and I was able to collect almost 20 baskets of fruits and veggies for the families. I remember it was a Sunday night. It was 11 o'clock, and I was dropping out the last basket of fruit for a family. And I was just so tired. And I felt like, why only me? Why only they're reaching out to me? And the Central Hispano, you didn't see anything on their Facebook page. You didn't receive any email saying, you know, okay, if the community needs something, we're here to support you. We were invisible to these people, but they are receiving the money. Why, and I will say this, and it might be offensive for people, but why, why people keep seeing El Centro Hispano as the only resource for us? They need to stop doing that. And I hate to see that in, in the comments, like, oh yeah, let's reach out to El Centro Hispano. Every single fundraising event they have, they're receiving all this money. How they're using the money, I don't know. We didn't, after the, they work with the governor, like, and publicly receiving the money, like, they have not sent any public email or thing on Facebook saying how they're going to distribute the money. One of the organizations from Greenville, they did it like two days after they, they got the money. So we need transparency. We need honesty because we cannot be living this way like and i will encourage listeners please stop seeing one organization as a representative for us you have to start on it because otherwise you are part of the problem and i'm telling i got so excited because four months 
And I have a database of all the, my people who got the COVID-19. I have the database of those who have died. And I want to make that, and I want to make those public because there's a story on it in every single family. I visit families. I keep the distance. They will be waving me from the window. Kids with uh, special needs, uh, with kids with like, they used to arrive from Central America. It just, it used too much. But the, then they had to be invisible because they're afraid of the system. They're afraid of, you know, social services. They're afraid of, it just, it's just too much. And me to mention something, there is a tax force in Durham. Guess what? I was never invited. And I was the only person who was doing this. And if I call up, if I call the NAB, if I, you know, tell my community who's, who has been there since day one, I know I have their support, but they don't want me in those conversations. But I mean, it's okay. I'm not going to stop doing what I'm doing because I know I have the respect from the community. And it is so sad that um, when they see we're raising money, where what they see, we need some pain pills, we need some this for the community. I mean, it's only, it's always our own community, the ones who are suffering, they say, you know, I have some left. I can share with this with my, with the, the, with the family they're looking for. And I want to thank Spirit House, the African-American woman-led organization, who they have provided like herbs and other natural uh, remedies, me medicine to my community. And it's been amazing because when I posted on Facebook, they were saying, oh my God, this is really good. Can we have some? So I went to all these places to drop out those, those medicines from them. So, you know, that's why I do believe like communities of color, we need to come together and just to strengthen our relationship because we're the ones who are suffering and I just want to say that thank you to Spirit House because also they have provided masks. And it's just like, it's just amazing, you know, like in, in the pandemic, in these moments of pain and like, it just, it just, it feels so good that we care and other people are caring like about our community. So please don't be part of the problem. Yeah. Be part of the solution. Thank you. Thank you for your your frankness and your your honesty and and how our community is or isn't responding. Uh, truth is truth is powerful and it it you know some run from it, some embrace it. And um, you know, we again our 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 imagination is stoked by by the image of of you working tirelessly in your community and you know prayerfully more, more will be inspired by that, that work. And even though it seem, even though it is, I was going to say it seems unjust, but it is when we, when we look at the story of the Samaritan, it's like this one person of all people, you know, stops along the side of the road. And, you know, we don't get this full story about what happens months and years later, if that was a remedy that was only short term because the street was still, uh, you know, was never repaired or, you know, the, those who felt like violence upon a person was appropriate way to, to take out their anger on whatever the system might be, you know, and again, I'm, I'm just grateful for you 
being a part of this conversation because at some point you get tired of conversations. We just got to go do it. We just point me in the right direction. But when I think about, you know, health disparities and inequities, when we live in a, a city of medicine or, you know, we live in a city with us, you know, like you say, so many uh, dollars flowing in, in various directions and to, to, to have to think that we need, you know, we got to rely on a Samaritan who does, maybe doesn't have a lot of means, but takes what they do have and says, you know, I'm going to care for my neighbor. It's a beautiful story in that sense, but it's also a tragic story because it suggests that the institutions that we sometimes are a part of make us less than human because, like you say, these institutions that are seen as places that should get money and resources and be able to distribute them justly, some, you know, don't. And then so now we have to, you know, pray for a miracle that somebody will come along and not just be a bystander or, or what have you. So bless you and Miriam for just, you know, continuing to, to let, you know, be a witness, be a test, you know, to testify, so to speak before, before the community and say, Hey, we can't, we can't continue to go on like this with, with, like you say, I narrow like understanding of who's, who can do good in our community or who needs the resources. Thanks for pointing out the ways Keith, the ways that Yvonne and Miriam really are showing us what it looks like to love your neighbor right now. And as we close our podcast today, I would love each of you, Yvonne and Miriam, to share for the listeners how they can go and do likewise, as that passage says. Um, What does it look like to love our neighbors right now, our Hispanic Latino neighbors? Um, Love for you to share just one or two things that are really um, that people can kind of take some next steps to support the work that you're doing. First, I want to say that uh, if you see something relevant, that that might be relevant in terms of uh, health or laws, immigration, whatever, ask if this has been provided in English and in Spanish, I mean, for, for our community. Because I just want to let you know that most of our community members they didn't have access to uh, to go to school in Mexico. So when they came here, they just came to work. So it's kind of hard like, just to, um, to put these things maybe like on social media, emails, because, you know, access to technology, to literature must be uh, appropriate for them, you know, to listen or maybe to see. But I mean, you know, yeah, that's one thing because we keep seeing this, like I have seen a lot of Twitter on like, from the city and the Durham government, it's just like, they need to stop. Like, can you do something better? Like, it's just like, it's not working. It's not working. So, I mean, if they have money for political campaigns <laughs> or things like other relevant stuff, you know, they must have money maybe to pay for commercial ads or something more visual. They can People just can't listen, right? And I would say, if you want to help our community do our research, like who's doing the work as a grassroots, who's really connected to the community, you know, like, because that, that's going to be helpful because that you will be able to identify what are the real needs of the community. And it just, so that's one thing, you know, like uh, I know that it's, it's kind of hard, like going to face to face with a community because, you know, we want everyone's to be safe, but also um, I'm, I'm willing to share because believe me, I'm every single day, I'm busy. 
I was working, uh, I was helping a family yesterday with the kids. I took into the river because, you know, she's about to have a baby. Um, her, uh, the father of these kids is um, being taken by ICE during the pandemic. Believe it or not, they keep working. So it's just like, it's too much for the family. So I was like, they need to take a break because they have been, you know, in uh, the quarantine, like isolated. It's just like, it's too much, you know, like, but I'm, I'm willing and people sometimes are willing to, to share their stories. So, you know, by creating these spaces, it just, I want to thank you for, because, you know, sometimes the government, all these high profile leaders, they will invite whoever is on their side, but not the real people. So thank you for this space. And uh, I'll be sharing my, uh, the things that I'm organizing with the, with the community. So if you want, you have any questions, just reach out to me and you will see the community working for them. And also um, like with, I'm working with La Semilla, then uh, as I'm, I'm just a volunteer there, you know, as I'm a member of La Semilla, but tomorrow uh, we're distributing some veggies and fruits for the community. So we're sharing details with the African community, especially with public housing leaders. So we've been doing this together. So that's the amazing thing that we're doing together. So thank you. And we'll put some information on our social media about people, how people can connect with you. But for those who are just listening and don't can't get to that right now, can you just share how uh, your Facebook page or something that um, people can go to to find you? Yeah, it's uh, Ivan Almonte, I-V-A-N-L-M-A-L-M-O-N-T-E. And we have a fundraising event this Sunday, July 12th. And because we have a, fam, a member of a community who passes away of uh, COVID-19. So the community are doing, a, uh, they're selling food and it's only for, uh, to pick up. So, uh, but it is going to be amazing. It's uh, women's cooking for the family, just like uh, it's traditional food. So awesome. thank you. Thank you. Uh, Miriam, what does it look like to love our Hispanic Latino neighbors right now? Yeah. Um... I, I think um, just like Yvonne said, um, having this space to really talk openly about what's really going on is it's definitely very helpful. Um, I think speaking your truth is very important, even if people don't like it or if it makes others feel uncomfortable. It's, it just has to be said. Um, through that, the hopes are that whoever is listening um, who is actually listening can start promoting and activating. Um, I don't think people who are doing uh, the dirty work in the community are able to do this work alone uh, because it does get overwhelming. It does get um, it does get very um, stressful. Uh, for someone to do this for so long and it can, they can get burned out. So if there's anyone that is willing to be part of this work in the community, like I said, be part, not leading it, because that's, that's one of the, I think that's one of the issues sometimes where you invite others to come and do the work with you in the community. They then tend to take the leadership and take the control of it and forget about who, why you're there, why you are doing what you're doing to listen to the community and those who are actually doing the work. So if you really want to help 
can be a part of it, please do so. But just remember to not take control. Let those who are actually doing the work, who know, who can relate, take the lead on this work. Um, I, I believe that if we allow our community to actually be heard and people who are doing the work take the lead, um, you know, trust will be gained. And hopefully those in leadership in our community in Durham will start listening, will start seeing some changes. Um, and that's how you can show your love to our Hispanic Latino community by actually listening and hearing them out. Um, I think uh, what Yvonne does, it's, it's, it's a lot. It's a lot of work, and I admire him for that. And, um, and like he said earlier, he, he's doing so much work, and there's places he's not being invited to talk to. But like I said before, there are people that don't want to hear it, that it's so uncomfortable for them. Like you're, very, you're challenging them to listen to the truth. So I think it's time for us to speak our truth, to challenge people, to actually start creating change. You can't be dormant and and think that the community is going to come to you and ask you for help because that's not going to happen. Like actually people have to start activating themselves and start putting themselves in the other side and start thinking about if I was in this position, would I be doing this or that? So um, it, it's, it's time to really think about others. Um, and I know some have the capacity and some don't have the capacity to do that. And if you don't have the capacity to, to be out there in the streets doing the work, it's okay. You don't have to. But there, there are ways that you can still help. If it's not by uh, being out there, you can help financially. You can help with actual resources that are going to be effective. Um, not just giving out numbers because we're tired of getting numbers uh, or like Ivan said, like like Zoom calls or or events that are not relevant to our community. Like um, he mentioned, there are people that are not tech-wise that don't might not even have a smartphone and some of them might not be able to read. So think let's think about all of those things where we're trying to figure out for resources for our community. Um, and... And just like I, I know that there's people that have connections, real strong connections, um, and if we can get some of those connections to actually educate our community to um, people from the health department or people who work in the health systems to actually come and talk about the real issues right now that are affecting our community, which is COVID. Um, we would truly appreciate that. I know Yvonne is going to be doing some um, conversations around that. And if we can get someone in power, um, because sadly that's how it works. You have to have someone in power for people to believe it. Um, but if there's someone that we can have to come and talk about to support our argument that COVID is real, that COVID is affecting families and killing families, that would be amazing. And if that person spoke Spanish, and that would be even greater. I think our people need to start feeling included in these conversations. And I'm not talking about professionals or those who are in leadership. I'm talking about those in our community, the oppressed ones, the ones that don't have access to the things that we might have access to. Um, so if we can get that, that would be great. Um, and I... And and I just encourage others and like myself, like I'm realistic as to what I'm capable of doing. 
And I also have to balance that in order to be effective and also in order to be able to do the work. Um, and so just being kind to ourselves too, like um, realizing that you would want to do and change everything, but sometimes you can't because you are at your capacity. But knowing that whatever that you do, do it from your heart, do it because you care, do it because it really matters to you. And like I said, if you if you can't be out there in the streets helping, it's okay. But if you do have a resource, if you have a connection, if you have something that you know it's going to help the community, please do so. Um, I know that sometimes um, our subconscious can be a little bit crazy and could stereotype and assume or question things, but I think when we're talking about loving our neighbor and loving others and think about God and what Jesus came to do to this world, that doesn't really matter. Um, I think we have to see people as people and humans and their backgrounds, whatever they did of have done it's not none of our business what we really want to do is create change change the system be effective make an impact in our community so just be mindful of that um and i pray and i hope that the work that we are doing as a community not only yvonne or myself but durham cares and all the other organizations um that there is a goal and that there's an end point where we'll be able to see um, an impact and effectiveness. Um, so for those who have, who have faith, um, continue to pray. Um, and if you have faith, just remember what Jesus came to do for this world and to serve. And that's what we're called to do to serve our community. And for those who don't, don't believe in God and it's okay. Like, um, yeah, I know that there are kind people that still want to be able to help. Please don't be discouraged. Continue to help. Um, and let's do this together because we, we need from each other. We can't do this alone. Miriam, Yvonne, thank you. Thank you for sharing your truths with us today. And, uh, my heart is broken. Uh, I feel like Keith said uh, uh, the word. It's just heavy. It's so heavy. Uh, and I don't, I don't have any words except to continue to keep you in my prayers. And just thank you for sharing uh, today. The Who Is My Neighbor podcast is a production of Durham Cares, a nonprofit that mobilizes Durham residents to love their neighbors. Learn more at www.durhamcares.org. Be blessed.